And so um, the breakfast had stretched on, so we went for an early afternoon pint <laughs> in a gay bar. And I said, why are we going to a gay bar? And he said, you'll know when you go in. And it was this quiet bar in Dublin. This is the mid-90s. And I looked around and thought, I think everybody here is gay. And I thought, is this what safety feels like? Hey everybody, welcome to No Small Thing, the podcast dedicated to helping you live a less certain and more curious life. I am Scott. And I am Macy. Welcome to episode number 72. Mm. Yes, it is, is it? 72. 72? Mm-hmm. What is this episode officially going to be titled? I don't know if it is 72. I think it is because we did 70, which is the Enneagram 2s, and then 71 was Peter Rollins. Wow. Okay, so it we is... got a few weeks left before we got to find what an Enneagram 3. What is the title 3. of this? This, I think, will just be Padraig Otuma. Oh, welcome yeah. to episode Padraig Otuma. That's the person. That's a person. I mean, it's an interesting name, right? You could have thought I was talking about some sort of philosophical concept. It's a person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just like last week, we have another interview episode mm-hmm. for you all because Scott went and did this really cool thing. Yeah. And what is it called? Awake? No. Uh, it was called Spark. Spark. Yeah. Spark. It was a retreat that I did with a philosopher I love, Peter Rollins. So the guy I interviewed last week is the guy that puts this on. And then he invites, he basically curates an experience. So he invites a lot of other really great, amazing, interesting thinkers to come out and talk. And one person in particular, particular that I did not get a chance to talk to is named Barry Taylor. And uh, we, we kept saying we were going to do an interview and I just never got around to it. But he said he'd be definitely willing to FaceTime with me someday. But Ooh. he at the end, I think he's an Enneagram 4. And he at the end, I told Macy, was the person I took the most notes for. Oh, oh, this yeah. person. And he's person like, sounds very his, his presentation was how not to be a brand. Yep, which and is like what I'm always feeling authenticity like. Authenticity at all costs. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you would have been super there for that presentation. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, so it'd be really fun to talk to him. But, um, anyways, yeah, I was out there, and Padraig Otuma is a poet and um, justice, peace, and reconciliation worker. And was sort of the featured guest of the retreat. Okay. And we had this night in particular where he read about 90, I don't know if it was 90 minutes. The time together was about 90 minutes and read three different sections of his poetry. And and then in the midst of that evening, we also got to hear this violinist. It was like a magical, beautiful evening. Yeah. And profound and hard. And um, a lot of the poems, he said he we can't share because they're awaiting to get submitted for different awards and stuff like that or, or mm-hmm. publications. I'm not quite sure. Sorry, mm-hmm. Padraig, if you're listening, I'm not <laughs> saying it right. But we, the, the gist of it is we weren't really allowed to record any of his poems, which I would totally post on our Instagram account if I would have been able to. But Sorry. Gotta he's have a to poet. Buy his book. Gotta got to buy, buy his book. book. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he was willing to do this interview, which I was so excited about. Yeah. And we did it. He's a very cool dude. So mm-hmm. I've listened to this interview and... You guys, it is worth your time. <laughs> I feel like we these last two interviews are, while it's a break from our typical, we don't usually do two interviews in a row. Right. Normally, that's it's, not intentional. We have conversations. It is yeah. Normally, we have just Scott <coughs> and I, and then about two of every five episodes are interviews because some of those are in Enneagram. 
Um, but these were just opportunities that couldn't mm-hmm. be missed. Mm-hmm. Um, and these interviews also feel very important and like they are right in line with our values as a team um, and voices that we hope to be highlighting. So Podrick has a very profound, provocative voice and he speaks for the queer community. He speaks about his experience of what it's like growing up gay and Catholic and the tension between that. But then also I feel like he's just very aware and in touch with the systems of our world and has a very beautiful way of explaining it that Mm. just makes it all seem like, oh yeah, these are the words I've been looking for. Mm. So. Yeah. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with yelling, but everybody has their own style and Padraig is a person in general that talks in a very gentle tone, Mm. but especially with his poetry, but just in general too, he, he talks in sort of, um, intense, justifiably angry ways in a, in a, in a still gentle tone. There's even a part in this episode that you'll listen to that I love where he says something along the lines of people saying, calling out that he's getting angry and -hmm. he's like, yeah, I am, I am angry and I plan on getting angrier actually. So, but he says it so gently. But he's like, I'm, I'm really angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, and that's the thing that's also, anger can be expressed in a myriad of ways. Mm-hmm. Anger isn't necessarily always loud. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the things he talked about, so Podrick was sort of the main speaker facilitator aside from Peter on this retreat, and so there was an evening where we got to just hear his poetry, which was a main feature of the retreat, but he also did a morning seminar every morning that Marissa, my wife attended cause she's a morning person. I skipped all morning gym. sessions. His morning session started at eight. I slept yeah. in typically till about 10 30. Gosh, I think I'd have a tough time. I yeah. would, I would probably go some of the mornings. Yeah. I guess we haven't really talked about this retreat. I've posted and alluded to it to get us on our Instagram. Everybody fo- side note. If you're not following us on Instagram, <laughs> we do a lot on Instagram. I don't know if you found this podcast from some other method, but yeah. like we do a lot of engagement on Instagram, but, um, I'm a more I'm an evening person. Marissa, my wife, is a morning person. Yeah. Um, and so Marissa would wake up at like seven fifteen every day and get her coffee and then journal a bit and then go to Podrick's thing. And for me personally, this is my style: is every evening at around eleven, they offered something they called the whiskey circle. And it was, it was like your dream. Yeah. <laughs> this this facilitator named Johnny, who is a, also total kindred spirit with Macy, because he he owns like a or participates in this big giant art collective and is just an artist at heart. And he would facilitate this conversation. He'd bring a bottle of whiskey and pass it around and we'd stay up to like 2 a.m. talking. <laughs> and that's my vibe and that's why I have to sleep in. But um, uh, yeah, Marissa would go to Podrick's thing. So that was four days in a row and it was essentially um, talking about poetry. But his one of his things that he talks a lot about is um, particularity. And... Um, I feel a little bit paranoid because if Podrick listens to this, which I don't even think he will, I'm going to butcher his beautiful wisdom. But um, the way I understood it is getting sort of precise as poets or writers or speakers or thinkers or creators about what you're um, trying to accomplish through a work Hmm. Um, and figuring out like, I'm going to write a poem or I'm going to write a piece and what is it that I'm trying to communicate? What is it that I'm trying to convey? And it could be something, in my understanding, that is intentionally ambiguous, mm-hmm. but trying to get um, really intentional with what you want to say. Hmm. And that's what a lot of the like morning Like getting in stuff, touch with what, what your heart is trying to get at with it? I think it. so. 
He says in the episode too that um, as a poet, he's really trying to use very plain speech. So not trying to be extra fancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's something really important about that. But uh, I think there's something also important about um, knowing, getting in touch with who you are and what motivates you and inspires you and, and what, what your message is essentially. Yeah. yeah. So particularity is something you talked about a lot. Podrick, if I was here and you were here, I'd ask you to expound more on that. But <laughs> yeah. One thing that I love that he talked about in this interview is when he was talking about, he was mentioning cause he comes from a particular experience mm-hmm. of, and he shares a bit about the, what it was like for him coming out as gay in this community, in a Christian community that it wasn't okay to be gay Mm -hmm. in. And he talks a bit more and extends upon LGBT issues. And he, in the very like poignant way, explains how, well, in probably a hundred years or however many years, like this isn't going to be an issue, but something else totally will be. And this is just the, the marginalized group in this setting. But there's always factors of people abusing power and that's what Mm -hmm. we need to be looking out for. And like naming this abuse of power as being what the evil is and not, and not necessarily like that can extend to so many different Mm -hmm. groups of people and extend in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's what we should be paying attention to. Yeah. To don't, to not just think like, Oh, we solved this issue now. Mm -hmm. We've, which it's like something that's been, part of social media lately and I don't even know what this is but it's like a Melinda Gates and the women from Broad City and saying this message essentially like statistics are showing it's gonna be like another 218 years before there's equal rights with women Mm -hmm. so not even that is fixed you know let alone equality for you know gay folks and people of color and stuff like that we're just talking about women you know Uh, so there's no issue that has been solved yeah, White yeah. Christian and, straight and men I are still running the world. there will always be, I don't know, I mean, you know, I go back and forth between being like, humans are essentially good, and yet also <laughs> humans are also drawn to power, and mm-hmm. humans are have a tendency towards othering, mm-hmm. and so it's our job to, we talked, you talked a bit about this, create spaces where belonging is at the center of it, mm-hmm. and we have to keep our eyes focused on that as we go forward, that belonging always has to be at the heart of it Ooh. and inclusion always has to be at the heart of it. That's the premise. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, what was it? Did you feel, did you feel encouraged listening to the episode? I mean, did you think it like it was, I mean, this is kind of a funny question, but did you think it was like, um, I don't know. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think? Let me just ask that. What did you think? <laughs> um, yeah, I think I felt both encouraged. I also just appreciated his vulnerability and willingness mm-hmm. to speak like powerfully and storytell powerfully. Um, I think I'm in a very particular place right now just in how I'm experiencing what it's like being queer mm-hmm. and being in Christianity. So it was, it's helpful and healing and interesting to hear someone else who is in a similar and yet very has a very different experience than my own. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think there is something very nice about just listening to this and knowing that I'm, you're not alone mm-hmm. um, as he's sharing these things. And also that he can speak to his experience in 
like it's nice to have other voices that are out there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I I think that this was a very nice for my soul episode. Oh, like, good. Good conversation. Good. Yeah. We've been out here with these big topics. I know. I know. So I think that brings up something we want to mention in this opening is part of our uh, identity is, is saying no small thing is saying, yeah, we definitely want to cover topics like racism and queer theory. You could say (laughs) like that, but like um, hearing people's stories, Mm -hmm. interviews, Enneagram, like, but we some do, more like some more serious topics. Yeah. But we 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 like to be a little bit more playful too, and we like the challenge of taking something that seems seemingly small and making it into a bigger thing. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah, and I think also part of our mood board as a podcast is that it's no small thing to feel and have like a myriad of experiences such as this world. Like, there's moments for silliness and fun and just mm-hmm. being lighthearted and taking. It's like our topics are often goofy sometimes, mm-hmm. like phones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also existential times. And then there's also times to like be really informed and to take something and try and maybe educate people on something. Um, so this is one of those topics that's, we've had the gender episode and then we have this one coming out. And then we also interviewed Matthias Roberts, who that'll be coming out soon, but we just finished that interview for, I think, so for us as a podcast, we've been like, oh, we have all these serious, big, big, big serious topics things. that like weigh heavily on us, I think, emotionally. So next week, expect a fun, lighthearted, silly That's episode. a good way of saying it, though. It's like it, it weighs heavily emotionally on us, mm-hmm. and it's work. It is work, everybody. Yeah. Work we enjoy and are proud of. But um, yeah, I think we long, we get in these spaces where it's like, okay, three weeks running now, we get in these spaces where it's like, we just want to do meet up and have a nice, lighthearted, easy yeah. conversation that we are laughing about. Yeah. That is, that is even, even, even after recording is sort of fun and silly to edit and just like, this is just whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. I also think as a sidebar for this, and just like a small let into the people listening. Mm-hmm. I have in the past few weeks experienced like discrimination for being queer and experienced it in the church. So this episode is very poignant and very like to the heart. And it's hard to like, I'm not ready to share about that experience, but it's like, even that's weighing on us that's too. That this is happening a real in the background. And like, yeah. this is a real thing. It's no small thing that people are experiencing discrimination and it's not, it's not uh, something that we can just pretend isn't happening. So, hmm. um, but next week, episode on what? Maybe jobs? We might talk about Maybe jobs. Maybe childhood toys. Oh, we might talk about childhood toys. Honestly, too, guys, if, you, if, if you're listening and think of anything that you think would be a fun, yeah, silly topic. Yeah, something out. Yeah, That's let us know. That's a fun, silly topic for us, please. Yeah. <laughs> Give us a, something lighthearted. Uh, I mean, it, may, it might be fun someday to do ASMR, too. Oh, you know? that would be so okay everybody maybe that would be like a precursor to launching your asmr channel i know yeah i haven't even said that macy has a backlog of asmr that one day they've been recording one day i'm gonna have it my goal was the end of october but then life got to be Mm -hmm. too much Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. me to be able to launch an asmr (laughs) channel (laughs) someday though Mm. all right we People. we are excited for this. <laughs> we think we think you'll learn a lot. This is an important person. I'm, uh, you know, I I, I want to. 
<laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. This isn't this isn't some random person we found off the side of the road, which would be interesting in and of itself. But mm-hmm. um, look up Padraig Otuma. Look him up on Instagram. Look up his website. Buy his books. He has books of poetry. He's a person to follow. He's sort of an up and comer. Uh, great, beautiful soul. And I think you're gonna love this episode. And um, we're proud to present it to you. So here we go. <laughs> Okay, I am here with Podrick. Is am I saying that right? Podrick. You are saying it right. Okay, and uh, this will be my second interview. If anybody listened to the Peter Rollins interview, where we are in this beautiful cottage, and it was where C.S. Lewis honeymooned, apparently. Mm. Um, so it's nice and quiet, and we have the river sounds behind us. Mm. And uh, Podrick, uh, I, I, hearing you talk this week. Not only do you have a, a story I think that's important to listen to, but you have a way of framing it that I think um, really helps people connect with what you're saying on a theological level, but on a, a, a real deep heart level too. Um, that I think, in my in my experience, uh, is becoming more urgent. Although I'm so sad to look back in my history and think that it wasn't urgent in my mind for a very long time. <laughs> but I wonder if you'd be willing to share a little bit of your story. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Ask me questions and I'll answer them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, I just wonder ab- about your early childhood. I mean, that's some of the things you were touching on. Um, yeah. And it seems that you you had a, I don't know what the best word is, an awkwardness maybe about uh, coming into yourself. Yeah. Well, maybe lots of people do. Everybody um, does. Yeah. Um, I mean, my early childhood, like I was very interested in language and I still am mm. and uh, loved poetry and I still do. Uh, I love music as well. And um, those things are all very important to me and always have been. Um, I spoke Irish and English before getting to school and so getting to school um, where Irish and English is just part of the curriculum, of course, and poetry and both of those. Those things have always been very important to me. Um, I, I knew, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, I'm inter- interested in poetry. I'm interested in gymnastics. So, of course, I was called the class faggot. Hmm. And so, hmm. um, and when I realized what that meant, I thought, I definitely don't think I am th- like the rest of the fellows in the class. Hmm. Not that being called anything made me that. It was just that, you know, there's kind of stereotypes. Um, and so when I realized, oh, that thing called gay, that is me, I realized also, I'm going to have to learn how to lie really, really convincingly. Mm. And I'm going to have to learn how to perform a certain version. Um, I used to make close observations of my friends to think, you know, what noises would they make if somebody said something about the the class disco or, you know, mm. whatever. And just to learn how to imitate in order to fit in. So on the one hand, you're trying to fit in, but also you're trying to be unnoticed. So that leads to an, an awful lot of complication. And then if you're religious, like I was, um, you know, you begin to hear all kinds of things too. This was in the mid-80s. I was born in 1975. And so um, AIDS and HIV was very much in the news. And so if I heard anything about gay people, as it would have been said, um, it was um, regarding AIDS and dying of AIDS. Mm-hmm. That certainly was the, the language around the place. So there was a great culture of fear as well as a great culture of um, uh, bullying 
and then a great culture of um, projection and silence also regarding gay people. So it was a complicated time to grow up. Macy, my co-host, was saying that growing up they would pretend to have crushes on boys Mm. and pick a, a boy that, in their estimation, was not attainable. So that there would be no risk that anybody okay. would ever try to set them up. Okay. So uh, to have a crush, but a crush that could never be followed through on. So therefore, yeah. you could just be seen as the person who has that kind of, yeah. That's a clever way to go about <laughs> it. I suppose we all came up with coping techniques. Yeah. And yeah. that's so I was just thinking about this idea of, of, or the stress and pressure of trying to pretend to be something you're not and fitting in and and coming up with mannerisms and ways of being that don't fit who you are. And learning how to pass uh, and all that. I used to always be very conscious of my hands. Um, I used to try to force my hands to look more manly Mm. as a 13 and 14 year old, (laughs) you know, because I was worried about um, how I carry my body, how I look, how I sound, you know, will my voice break or, you know, all those kinds of things. That, that are part of the anxieties of any mm-hmm. young person who's f- trying to figure out, do I fit in with the group that I want to fit in with? Um, but um, f- for lots of groups of people who know that if you don't, that there's an increased level of threat or stress, um, those can become real obsessions for the self. How would you make your hands look more masculine? Just by pushing my hands out a bit so that my hand, my, my, my like knuckles wider? W- would be broader and wider hmm. rather than kind of a more slender hand. Hmm. Now, as it happens, I don't have slender hands. Right. But I was very anxious about this. You know, there's a, it was almost a form of <coughs> hypermasculinity that I was interested in to go, how can I make sure my hands are as wide as possible hmm. in order to, that people would go, wow, he's got manly hands. <laughs> it's uh. a ridiculous thing, but it shows these small obsessions that would um, come into the mind of somebody who felt like there was a lot of threat and a lot of secrets to hold. Well, whatever our culture or society is doing to us, I, I don't relate on the sense of trying to look more masculine, but I do remember like, have, getting this habit of pressing my nose together so it looked thinner. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I would do that all day. Like yeah. third grade, I would yeah, start doing sure. that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for people in the LGBTQ community, there's um, all kinds of particular levels of threat mm. of abandonment, relinquishment, and exile that we live under or have lived under, hopefully. And in many places, those levels of threat are diminishing, thank God. Um, but partly, those are exaggerations, true and, and, and worthwhile exaggerations to pay attention to, of basic anxiety that lots of people have about will I fit in, mm. um, which isn't to diminish the experiences that lots of us had of, of absolute threat, sometimes threats that were carried through. But somehow it, it does speak to an economy of the human spirit where lots of us are seeking for something called belonging. And I think there is um, a movement now amongst younger people that I know where there is the sense of, well, you belong because you belong, mm. you know, uh, whether that whether you look really um, different, um, whether you present in different ways in different days, or whether you present the same all the time, yeah. that actually belonging is the beginning point rather mm. than proving you belong. That's beautiful. And, and I think that's a really good improvement. Yeah, my kids, like I said, are 15 and 13 and growing up in a completely different generation and different culture. And <laughs> it's like for us parents... The moment one, I don't even know the best way to say this, but the moment one step is made in terms of expanding our understanding of what's allowed and what's accepted, 
right around the corner is a brand new thing to where the 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 culture now, especially in Seattle, is exactly what you said. The the premise is belonging. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful. It's great I think that's exactly as it yeah. should be. But talking to friends of mine or other parents in the area, oftentimes the the mantra is something along the lines of when will it stop? Uh, you know, I thought I had made the adjustment and now this and then yeah. now this. And uh, <laughs> it's just funny to think if you reverse the thought process, like, the, you know, there should there should be you don't need to worry about any surprises around the bend because yeah. the premise is belonging. So yeah. don't worry about it. Whatever yeah, comes next, sure. we'll comes include next. that person, too. And yeah, totally. I think one of the things I was struck by just in terms of talking, this is something that I've just been learning in the last month or so. And this is more of a gender thing and not necessarily a sexuality thing. But if we're talking about breaking this concept of a gender binary or maybe the fact that it, it was already broken, but we're the ones creating a binary mm. Um, the possibilities then do become pretty endless in terms of how people can express or present. Um, and I can see how that would be very overwhelming to people. Um, I tend to think it's pretty exciting. Yeah. But I don't know how to... Um, I don't know how to engage with people that feel so anxious about yeah. that. Partly, uh, partly this isn't anything new. We have new language for it. But we've always known that there's been different expressions and performances of what it means to be a man mm. and different profession, pr- um, uh, progressions and performances and expressions about what it means to be a woman. Uh, I think sometimes with a, within a binary understanding, you can think there's one shape for what a real man's like and one shape for what a real woman's like. Any analysis of any community of people will show you that there's a whole variety of shapes um, and that you see... Mm people who, within their gender, um, find an expression of their personhood and their adulthood where the question about gender is important but is not a limitation factor. Um, And uh, that's straight people too. Do you know, uh, even amongst, you know, if we were to take 100 straight men, uh, you'd get a whole variety of performances about what it means to be a man amongst that group Mm. of people. Now, one of the things you might get in that is the sense that a lot of them feel like, well, there is an ideal and I don't measure up to it. He does. You know, so you mm-hmm. might get a lot of that kind of comparison and um, competition there. And that's really worthwhile critiquing. But on a basic analysis, we, we know that already we admit for a whole variety of styles of expression and performance about what mm. even a straight man is supposed mm. to be. So it, it just stands to reason that, of course, across all of the gender expressions that there are, there's a whole variety of presentations and performances and work away. To my work mind, away. the invitation is toward being an adult. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's what really interests me. The question about um, gender and whether a person fits in with somebody else's imagination about what that gender should act like. That's fairly uninteresting to me. And it, it makes me think of a limited imagination about what gender is mm. rather than anything that's authoritative. It, and it does seem that like a, a lot of people are sort of locked up in their own commitment to presenting and expressing a certain and performing a certain way. And one wants to be able to free people up to be able to truly be themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think the invitation is towards being, um, an adult with wisdom, with fun, with creativity, 
with life, with possibility, and living in a wider society that honours those things, and living in a society that, in places where it doesn't honour those things, is beginning to change in policy and in practice towards mm -hmm. honouring um, all of those things. Anything else is unimaginative. Mm -hmm. I love, that's a good way of saying it. It's unimaginative. So going back to your story, um, you were growing up in the church, and that was a particularly abusive experience for you, I think. Yeah, well, I'm Catholic and was involved in the charismatic mm -hmm. side of the Catholic Church and then the charismatic side of um, uh, ecumenical work as well, bringing Catholic and Anglican and um, Reformed and Evangelical people together. And um, I got involved with some prayer groups and with organizations that were uh, very devout, filled with really good people, mm -hmm. where I learned a lot of things. And within them, there was... Um, deep anxiety about the possibility of a person who was gay. And so when I was 18, there was a few exorcisms arranged for me. And then when those exorcisms were deemed to have been unsuccessful, so-called, um, I was uh, recommended slash told to go along to somebody who would try to cure me um, through some um, reparative therapy, it was called. Mm. The groups have moved away from that term now, but it, there's still some groups that imagine that with some kinds of intervention that change is possible, whether that intervention is so-called psychological or so-called spiritual. Some people yeah. say, oh, no, you have unwanted same-sex attraction and we'll just provide some healing prayer that might address some of your unmet needs from your childhood and that might bring you into a deeper maturity about what it means to be a man now. So that sounds very gentle, except mm -hmm. that's just a new packaging for an old idea, which is an obsession to imply that there is causa negative causation for somebody who's gay and building on that, that there is negative consequence of having gay people mm -hmm. in the wider society and building on that, that in order to prevent that, that there's cure interventions that can be done or containment interventions to say, well, look, we won't cure you. We won't make you heterosexual, but we will at least contain you by getting you to commit to celibacy. Mm. Um, and you get um, LGBT people who are used to um, all of those imaginations. Some of those enactments, like the ones that I went through, were really crude and vulgar. You know, um, one of the people that I'd gone along to do would, you know, ask me to imagine the parts of a woman's body that in my future heterosexual healed humanity I would find attractive. Do you know, that's vulgar um, and misogynist. Yeah. Uh, he used to always get me, also get me to account for any time during the week since I'd been to him when I might have been aroused and to get me to think through was that sinful or not, you know, if it was about something. Uh, so those are really vulgar. But it isn't only the vulgar things that are... Um, that are problematic. Things like healing prayer for your unmet needs that has led to you being somebody who um, might struggle a little bit with your sexuality. That's just as insipid. Mm. And actually, its gentleness only convince its perpetrators that it's gentle. Mm. And the impact of it on the person who was being perpetrated upon is still violent. Um, you know, I'm a youth pastor, and so I think... Uh coming alongside students at that time and providing space for them to be able to figure themselves out is extremely important. Yeah. And um, thinking about this season of your life, I'm wondering if you were sort of buying into it and, and, and you were trying to go along with it and or were you just right out in the back of your mind were like, this is bad? Or, or you oh, I was up totally in buying into it because yeah. uh, there was threat. The threat was, because I was working in the place of faith, 
the threat was that I'd lose my job, mm. my faith, my friends, my family, my future in heaven, my salvation, you know, all of these yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. And so therefore, I become convinced to say, well, the way away from all of those things is to, um, is to participate in this. So you become your own colonizer. Mm. And that's part of the whole project, I think. Divide and Conquer is a long um, technology that's been used way before apps. Mm. Divide and Conquer is one of the most sophisticated human technologies for diabolical activity that we can get. If you get a country or a person to do their own devilish work on themselves, you don't need a devil. And you don't need some malevolent dictator. You get somebody to do their own displacement and their own partition in themselves. And then you can watch them fall apart, as they inevitably will. And then you can go see, that's evidence of the fact that they are from a depraved identity or something like that, because look at them, they're falling apart, they can't cope with things. Instead of doing a wider societal analysis to say, how have we created the situation where regularly people who are LGBTQ are facing mental health issues? Instead of blaming them to go, well, clearly there's something intrinsic about being LGBTQ yeah. that has mental health impact say how is the wider world hostile to that experience and then the change therapy there is to change the wider world <laughs> rather than to change the individuals yeah you were saying something the other day about um uh this this sort of uh, colonialism colonialist mindset of uh of getting people to negotiate and they're not their native tongue um and it seems similar, uh, yeah. diabolical is a word yeah. that I think is very appropriate for that. Yeah, there's an old, I mean, there's an old technique in colonialism, which is to introduce a new language and a new god mm -hmm. into a place that already had its own languages and its own gods. And uh, if people are negotiating in a language that isn't their own, and, we're in a, and I, that isn't only just about an actual different language, if you're negotiating in a mindset within which you're not fluent, and maybe you don't even want to be fluent, well then you know, it can be really complicated. Mm. I went along once to a mediation speaking to a, a pastor who was doing some change therapy and I went along, this is recently enough, and I went along to challenge, I suppose, and to appeal to this pastor to cease doing. And the the meeting was complicated. Uh, we met in a place with a, a mutual friend thinking, well, I'm, I'm only interested in this being kind of escalated shouting. I, mm -hmm. I'd like us to actually communicate with each other and to come out with some kind of situation where... Um, change therapy would stop yeah. Okay? Yeah. Um, or change prayers and the pastor said well before we talk I need you to prove to me that you're not breaking any of the Ten Commandments Ooh. and I just felt unfluent it was like this is a little game and yeah. uh, I think that we're starting here makes me think you have an assumption of the ones that you think I'm breaking so yeah. how about we start with that why don't you tell yeah. me and then he went this isn't starting very well I was like I know uh, <laughs> you is know? it just my yeah, not off to a good start. And yeah, I think that's as if that was my problem. Yeah. <laughs> I think that is one of the weird things. And and again, I'm I'm just a person I'm embarrassed to admit that's only just starting to see it mm. as a white straight Christian man out in the world. Yeah. Um, or maybe I saw it but didn't understand it as a problem. Yeah. And just this idea that um the burden would be on you to talk about how you're following the Ten Commandments, but not the person asking you the question. Totally. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, questions to do with inclusion at the moment, uh, a lot of questions to do with inclusion um, are regarding LGBTQ inclusion um, and race and mm -hmm. gender. Mm -hmm. Okay. There will be a time, maybe in a millennium, <laughs> where those will not be the obsessions. Mm. 
because there has been hopefully enough reparations work in terms of providing equity and having equal representation, etc. But my guess is is that the human condition will still be plagued by our capacity to abuse power, hmm. and so our ongoing relationship with power is the true repentance uh, that wider society is called to, whether people are religious or not, that uh, we're called to be attentive to our capacity to abuse power when we have some. And that's what really interests me. Um, the manifestation at the moment is regarding particular identities. Great. Let's pay attention to that and let's do the work. But let's not think that once we get over that hurdle that therefore, fantastic, we've done the work now. There'll be other groups that will become marginalised mm. um, and where there'll be other demonstrations of ways within which people abuse power. Amen. Yeah. Well, not well, amen necessarily, but... So the, the work will continue yeah. for all of us. And yeah. I won't always... I mean, I, I mean, when it comes to LGBTQ experiences, I certainly have had dramatic negative experiences. Um, but I'm also a white, able-bodied, cisgender right. man. And so the idea that I can't be a perpetrator of something... When it, because in one area of my life I've been a victim of abuse of power. That's naive and dangerous. Mm. Lots of people think that because of X, I can't be Y. Mm -hmm. Certainly, um, I, I, in many years working in conflict resolution, I have not found that to be the case. Mm. And we, we all need to be careful about the ways within which we manifest power. So it seems that uh, at times when you've been invited to these places, even though you have been marginalized growing up in a lot of ways and um it seems that maybe just because you are a white man still you are invited to certain tables and places of power that you wouldn't have otherwise sure yeah yeah, yeah. um so in terms of your narrative what at at what point did you start to fight back so to speak or or gain confidence or um there's a variety of things that all overlapped um, one of the reparative therapists was getting me to tell him the parts of my female friends' bodies that I would want to, in the future, find attractive. And I found that to be um, intolerable as an imagination. Mm -hmm. I was uninterested in participating in that little piece of homework. <laughs> and um, I said to him, I don't even want to want to have the kind of sex you seem to want me to have. And he said to me that I was my problem was language because I'd used the word have and he said, have is a selfish verb. I should use the word give, because give is an unselfish verb, which I just thought was ridiculous. Mm. It makes no sense. Verbs aren't selfish or unselfish. Right? They don't have personalities. It's just a noise you make with your mouth. <laughs> and in the Irish language, there isn't a formal verb for have. Mm. You, you say you, the function that have has in English is a very interesting function, but you have different ways of expressing that in other languages, including Irish. So I was thinking, if we were speaking in Irish, you wouldn't be able to say that. Like, it's ridiculous. Um, so uh, that, on an intellectual level, made me realize he's making all this shit up and I don't have to go along with it. Um, and how old were you about that time? I was in my early 20s, okay. maybe. No, yeah, 20. So I, I left. I never went back to him after that. Mm. Um, then a friend of mine, Sabina, because um, I still kept on reading some books. You know, I realized that his version of it was bad, but I still thought, well, no, maybe there's somebody who's more intelligent mm. um, <laughs> who might be able to talk about change. So... I told my friend Sabina, she asked me one day what I was reading, and I told her I was reading a book um, called The Cry of the Faithful, The Homosexual in the Life of the Church. And um, she said, oh, 
I'm coming to see you tomorrow. <laughs> she was living in the north. I was living in Dublin. And so she came, spent the night. We were chatting away. And she was going, so, like, are you gay? And I said, no, I'm struggling with a homosexual orientation. You know, those, yeah. those kinds of languages I'd been taught. And she said, and let's sit and meet up with my friend. And so we went on Sunday morning for breakfast and um, met up, up with this friend of hers who was a gay man. And we were sitting down having a cup of tea in some cafe in Dublin City. And um, Sabina suddenly went, oh, my God, I have to go and do some Christmas shopping. So she got up and left. <laughs> and this Even, is all intentional. Of man. course it was. Yeah, the whole yeah. damn thing was pre-orchestrated. <laughs> um, and it was lovely. He is was and is such a nice person. He said to me, I think he must. she must have told him that I was awkward about what to call myself. Mm. That I knew that I was gay and always had been, but I wouldn't use that term. And so he just said, how are you doing with that other thing? And I said to him, do you know any gay couples that love each other? Hmm. And he said, finish off your breakfast. Let's go meet them. Hmm. And I kind of accidentally landed on the question that was the deepest point, because I had been told over and over that gay couples, LGBT, same-sex couples, LGBT couples, were incapable of love, that it was just a perversion of what God's true intention for what loving adulthood could look like hmm. and loving coupledom. And um, he said, finish off your breakfast, let's go meet them. And I went, we don't need to, I just need to know, I, tr I, I trust you. If you're telling me that you know couples that know each other, lovely. Um, and then uh, Sabina came back after an hour and it was lovely. I was nervous and anxious and delighted to have the opportunity to talk to somebody. And so um, the breakfast had stretched on, so we went for an early afternoon pint <laughs> in a gay bar. And I said, why are we going to a gay bar? And he said, you'll know when you go in. And it was this quiet bar in Dublin this is the mid 90s and I looked around and thought I think everybody here is gay and I thought is this what safety feels like wow. looking around and thinking I need this do you know um, and so for a few years I'd, I was working in Christian ministry I'd kind of sneak into this particular gay bar mm. on a Saturday afternoon when it was quiet and get a lemonade and just sit there talking to nobody but just looking around thinking, what what does it mean for me to have to sneak in somewhere for safety? Yeah. Uh, I was always petrified of talking to anybody. I never did. Uh, but that was the imagination of what sanctuary could be. Yeah, I was going to say that the feeling you felt about going into this gay bar is the feeling that a pastor would probably want people to feel about coming into their church. Yeah. Um, exactly. you weren't opposite. feeling that. At of course the time. not. No. Yeah. You go into a church, you're, you never know what you're going to hear from yeah. the pulpit in terms of, you know, abomination or lifestyle of sin or all these projections that you have because of your gender or sexual orientation identity or because of your experience or whatever's going on. Lo yeah. Loads of people go into churches wearing armor because they just think, oh, what am I going to have to tolerate hearing here? Um, that, you know, that is really a displacement from the serious questions about what a moral and imaginative life can actually mean. There's kind of various idolatries that the church has regarding who is the sinner and not. Mm. And rather than addressing systematic abuse, racism, colonial inheritances, etc., um, poor um, governance regarding money, lack of accountable structures, they'd much rather make, you know, women in the room feel inadequate because they're women. LGBTQI people in the room feel inadequate because we're LGBTQI or whatever, whoever it is that's the, the, the latest target to be yeah. to be highlighted. People feel um, that they should be grateful because their race has been included now and isn't that fabulous and stop going on about reparations. Do you know, all of that, all, uh, 
those are low-hanging, easy targets for bullying instead of the serious moral action that is needed. I don't not believe in sin. I just don't think that those of us who are called sinners are the real issue. I think the sin that's seriously important is the sin of these systematic prejudices and privileges that are not being addressed and undone. Yeah, and I, I, I would have... I would have thought, well, I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea how to say, are we getting better as a society? But I would have thought uh, we were. And I've been involved in some spaces that uh, are really going backwards in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. And I think there is that mentality of, well, this this mentality that being, being accepting or attempting to be accepting instead of being affirming mm-hmm. is good enough. And this mentality that, you should be grateful. And yeah. we've really worked hard to become welcoming, whatever that would yeah, mean. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's different things happening in different pockets. So there's obviously going to be some pockets where, um, for people who are participating in those, it, it's getting better. Great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that isn't going to be the case everywhere. Um, intersectionality is a very important word these days. So, you know, you might have it that you've got more white gay men, more prominent in, um, public faith in the world, Do you know, lovely, great. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not saying that's a bad thing, but the idea that you should stop there is a real problem. What about, um, you know, uh, disabled people? Mm-hmm. What about uh, people who are, you know, African American, uh, gender queer people? Uh, what about people who have transitioned gender? Um, why is it that we have this imagination that we stop at inclusion based on step one? <laughs> right, um, right. And perhaps an overly funded step one. Yeah. Um, which isn't to say that white gay men haven't suffered in, in terms of when you look at what lots of white gay men um, experienced throughout the 80s in terms of um, vitriol. Mm. Um, sure, there was suffering, but there's also more suffering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, we in terms of my identity, don't define the end and the edge of what suffering is. Mm. We're just the beginning, Mm. um, and there's a lot more. And we've been perpetrators of that sometimes, both by action and by inaction. Um, You, so you, that was a beautiful experience that you had, you know, meeting this man and being taken to the gay bar. And And my friend Sabina. And your friend Sabina. Uh, (laughs) And the way they set it up feels so gentle and kind, not aggressive. Again. And pleasantly manipulative. Yeah. yeah. Pleasantly manipulative. (laughs) The way that friends do. (laughs) The way that friends do. Um, And so then it seems that maybe after that you started feeling more comfortable. Yeah. Um, I started telling more people. Yeah. Very quietly. Yeah. I was still working in Christian ministry, so I, I couldn't be out. That didn't kind of happen for another ten years, but I was becoming more out mm. uh, with with more selective groups of people. Mm. Yeah, but so that's that's intense. So another ten years of yeah. keeping it pretty hidden. Yeah. How how old were you when it was more public? I mean, I came out to my parents when I was thirty. I moved away from working in Christian ministry when I was thirty-two. I mean, really, from the age of late, my late twenties onwards, most people were beginning to get yeah. to know. But I couldn't be in a relationship because mm. of the organization that I was working in. Mm. So um, I found myself thinking, were I to meet somebody who was younger and they said to me, should I work within this um, expression of faith? I'd go, no, like um, work somewhere where you're not going to have to hide parts of yourself. And it w- I work somewhere where if you fall in love, people are like, fabulous, rather than 
um, all right, you're going to have to leave your job. So I thought I wouldn't advise anybody else to work here. So why am I, why am I doing it to myself? So that's what finally um, moved me away from that. I loved the work and it was good work. And lots of the people who did and continue to do that work are good people. Yeah. So I, I don't make devils out of them because um, that's that's a failure of the imagination too. Um, typically terrible situations are have a lot of people with really good intentions at the heart of it. But intentions don't cut it for me anymore. I'm really interested in impact. Yes, we have a friend of ours, Reuven, who who reads poetry on the podcast mm. sometimes, and uh, he is studying postcolonialism at UW, oh. and that's one of his big. He never listens to the podcast, but sometimes maybe. Uh, but that's one of his big things to talk about. It's like. Uh, not caring about intentions. Intentions don't mean anything to him. And that's another been a big, um, mm-hmm. I think growing up, I would have thought, well, the person means well. It's like, I don't, yeah. I don't care about what the yeah. intentions are. I spoke to a friend who's a, who used to be a criminal defense lawyer about intention. We went out for a few drinks because in law, intention's everything. Mm-hmm. If you can prove mm-hmm. intent, you can, um, or if you can prove that a certain intent wasn't there, or you can introduce um, questions about intent, well, then you can move a serious case from a serious accusation to a less serious accusation, for instance. Um, so intent is not just something that people within um, conservative religious circles um, depend on. The law also depends on that. So it needs to be reckoned with seriously. But there is a category within um, within law. So, for instance, if a person is driving within the speed limit and causes an accident, mm even though they're, so say the speed limit is 30 miles an hour and they're driving at 29 miles an hour, um, there you can say, well, you're, you weren't breaking the law. Your intent was not to cause this accident. But you can still say, nonetheless, given the fact that this was the end of school time, for instance, mm. you were driving recklessly. Mm. And so being reckless within the context of so-called good intentions is a legal category. And I think it's really worthwhile, places of faith beginning to recognize that, to say, in the midst of saying, oh, I want to love people and I want to love my faith and all of those things to be true to go, we still have to ask ourselves the question, are we nonetheless being reckless given the information we have about the damaging impact of the kinds of activities we do towards marginalized populations? And so recklessness, uh, yeah. I think, is really worthwhile exploring from a theological and from a a a, a church practice and church policy point of view. Hmm. I think those words are so important. I think reckless sounds like a really important word. And I think yeah. at best, churches think, or no, maybe that maybe this is the way I'd say it. I'm trying to get in the head of, you know. Uh, Bigoted churches, I guess. <laughs> but well, but they maybe say at best they're lazy or too busy. That's Or at worst. That's a, they'd yeah. say at worst they're too busy yeah. or lazy, yeah. And I don't, maybe, maybe this isn't the case, but <clears throat> I don't know too many groups. There obviously are going to be some. But most groups are not going to say, let's form our belonging on the basis of bigotry. Yeah. You know, they're going to form their belonging on the basis of something. And then there'll be fears gather around that. And because of an inadequate theology or spirituality for exploring fear and facing it as a call to a deeper spirituality, mm. you just demonize your fear mm. or you or you 
um, sanctify your fear and believe that your fear is accurate so therefore you project evil onto whoever it is that you fear and I think there's there's a new maturity that's needed within that which is also an old maturity communities right. of people have been exploring the edges of their belief for a long time you see the early scriptures of Christianity filled with these questions about you know Gentiles and Jews circumcised or not circumcised women leadership or not women leadership you know so one of the things that the early literatures within that tradition of Christianity communicate is that the question as to where do the edges of belonging start and end has always been part of it. And I think it's always going to be part of it. And therefore, we shouldn't be scandalized by the fact that people wish to ask these questions about other populations now. I think that's it's evidence of people engaging deeply with their faith rather than something that's threatening to end their faith. Yeah, I think that I think that um, story and passage about circumcision and acts is just seems like the most obvious place to start when having these conversations, yeah. and that most people that they just their eyes just glaze over when you bring yeah. that up, and they want to bring up their uh, all the verses that they have I in their know, back pocket, clean or unclean food or yeah. whatever, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder if you have any like success stories in terms of the work that you've done, uh, having people have a change of heart or change of mind. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, which is great. Yeah. Um, so many situations where people would have been, um, convinced, um, both intellectually and in interpersonally that the way that they've been using their reading of the Bible actually can change. Mm. And, by virtue of changing the way they read the Bible, which isn't to say to discard it. Sometimes it's a more accurate reading or a closer reading um, to therefore feel like there's there's a greater space of inclusion. Yeah. Um, lots of time people need a personal experience, somebody that they love dearly who comes out and therefore they go, as a result of that crisis for them, they begin to examine their actions. Um, that's okay. I kind of wish that we didn't need to wait until everybody who has negative policies about us has a as a personal experience so you know I'd like it that more people would just begin to go oh I need to do some work without waiting until you realise you've hurt somebody close to you mm. there's enough people that aren't close to you that have been hurting um, for uh, changes to happen so yeah I mean I've run lots of seminars and done lots of work when it comes to exploring the narratives of LGBTQI mm. people as well as exploring some of the um, the texts um, used from religious contexts to speak about us and intellectually and interpersonally introducing um, the fact to say, look, there's six or seven really interesting ways to interpret this text. Why do we just think there's a good way and a bad way? So let's let's explore the Hebrew word toeva that you find in the book of Leviticus, the word that's translated into English as abomination. Mm. Let's find, let's explore the word arsenokotai that you find in the Christian Greek scriptures. Mm. Um, and to go, what does arsenokotai mean? When, when was the word homosexual used to translate that word first? Mm. You know, who did it? Who, who yeah. translated it? Who did yeah. that? And it was, I think it was the 1800s. Mm. So to go, what was it called before then? Why is arsenokotai followed, um, following mutilators? Mm. You know, because uh, arsenokotai was a name for a, a, a moneyed, married, high-ranking Greek individual, male, who was married to a woman who had slaves boys who had been castrated mm. so that he could rape them without the so-called fear of being raped back. That's called arsenokotai. 
So hence it says, you know, you liars, you fornicators, you arsenokotai, you mutilators. I have no problem that arsenokotai is condemned in a list of sins. Mm-hmm. I do have a problem with the idea that arsenokotai is, a, a, that tra- homosexual is an appropriate translation of that. Mm. And so, uh, and that's, that's just good scholarship. And so yeah. um, sometimes people are like, well, it says it there in ink in the Bible. So, you know, if it was different, I'd believe it was something different. And half the time we need to go, let's take a really close reading of that text. Mm. Let's look at the original languages. Let's find a way to interpret it. I'm not somebody that would argue that the Bible is necessarily pro-gay. I just don't think that the ways that we've manipulated the Bible to make it anti-gay are accurate. I think that's something I've learned a lot from Peter is that we'll often use religion or God to just amplify our own bigotry. Yeah. Um, it's a predetermined outcome to say, let's look for where the Bible justifies my hatred of that group of people yeah. rather than saying, am I the one in need of conversion? Yeah, absolutely. And then as somebody that's gone to seminary and studied scripture, and I find it so alarming and frustrating how um, uh, being trained to look and dig deeper into scripture is often uh, not wanted in, in many churches. Mm-hmm. Or uh, if you, if the, I, I think a lot of people assume you went to learn the right way to think about it. Yeah. And now you have a firmer foundation rather than a lighter. Yeah. more curious yeah. um, approach to scripture. Sure. I mean, it, it's a failure of the imagination. And I think this is possible for people in all religious and political spectrums. Sometimes we go to learning in order to, to justify that we're already right. Right. Instead of imagining, I might be wrong. I have a lot to learn. And so there is an imagination of the dignity of learning, which isn't frightened of ignorance or frightened of change that we need to have in front of us. And I think that's a really important thing. Theological college or seminary is not set up to prove to you why you've always been right. It's set up to say, let's mess with your thinking. Let's yeah. let's open up the possibility to go, there's lots of ways of thinking about this. And in the middle of opinions about various theological premises, there's the work of burying people, mm-hmm. of christening, baptizing people, of marrying people, of being together as community with each other when something terrible happens and being with each other in celebration also. Mm-hmm. Um, and locating... Um, locating theological imagination and deep theological thinking within the context of an interpersonal group ethic is really important. That's beautiful. Um, I'm wondering, I, I, I read the works of James Cone for a year, and uh, he's, just for anybody listening, he was sort of the founder of Black Liberation Theology, and uh, he was known for being very angry and one of the things that I was convicted about as I was reading his work was uh, that he was often invited to teach with in the same spaces as Reinhold Niebuhr, and so they were uh, friends, it seems. Uh, but there, he, 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 in his in his book, uh, "The Cross and the Lynching Tree," he juxtaposes uh, news clippings of local lynchings where Reinhold Niebuhr would be speaking, and Reinhold Niebuhr wouldn't speak out on it, and he has published articles where he was saying the black community needs to be patient with this white community. We're figuring it out. I, I agree that these lynchings are wrong, but it's going to take a while for us to get there. And James Cone, I think, uh, rightly introduced a lot of anger into these conversations. Um, very rightly so. Uh, but uh, I was just so struck and, and saw myself in sort of this moderate... Um, well-spoken, gentle, slow-moving, white institution 
and and anger is viewed as like, well, you know, don't don't lose your head about this. We got to be reasonable. <laughs> we'll talk about it. And I, and Unless I, and you're losing your head. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the whole point. And I and I I felt I felt that way uh, about uh, absolutely the gay slash queer community now uh, that that we're talking about this so in in many churches and in many Christian spaces in in such a slow, lazy, non-urgent hmm. um, meanwhile, way. Pe- meanwhile, people are dying or being excluded. Yes, yeah, so yeah. I have a question. Like, what, 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 where do you think the role of anger plays yeah. in your work? Uh, I'm, I, it's um, very present. I've yeah. got a new book coming out next year called Feed the Beast, um, and there's lots of poems in that about reparative therapy or exorcisms, and there's plenty of anger in there. Mm-hmm. Um, um, one of the things that happens in protesting communities is um, is the idea that people's objections to something that's wrong all need to look the same. Mm. And uh, so I got invited once to speak at this conference, God Almighty. Um, <laughs> somebody was running a conference about LGBT people in the life of the church. It was a conservative conference, mm. and the organizer invited me to come along. And the conference was called The Lepers Among Us. Ooh. And... Um, Ugh. It was a conference that implied that cure was possible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the organizer said to me, "You're one of the good homosexuals because you're not an angry one." So I, he said, "If you can stand the conference, I'll give you 15 minutes at the end for a response." Wow! And um, walking in, there was a protest happening outside. I asked a friend, another gay guy, to come with me. Um, I knew and greeted and kissed and hugged everybody in the protest outside. <laughs> And what was lovely is that we knew we each have different forms of work to do for the same purpose. Mm. And regularly what happens is that um, groups who were protesting against something will fight amongst each other to say, you shouldn't be in there doing that. You shouldn't be out mm. there doing that. Mm. And ultimately, that's just the same as being colonized. We've been divided and conquered. We're doing the work of our detractors for them because we're fighting among ourselves. And I'm much more interested in saying, look, this is probably going to take the collaboration of five or six different forms of intervention, one of which is great anger and great protest and calling for sanctions, etc. One of which might be the complicated, compromising work of thinking, hmm. how can I present an alternative way and meet people in here? And there's other ways too, in terms of you know looking at what the what the public policy about the hiring of halls for such events is, and each of those will play its own part. Hmm. And the point is, is to find collaboration together rather than to rip each other apart and then get nothing done and then allow people who actually hate LGBTQ people anyway to just go check them out. They're just ripping each other apart. Evidence that they don't have morality on their side. And so I am always interested to go, who is orchestrating um, the fights that happen amongst the the communities of people who Mm. are wishing to respond back? So when somebody says, oh, you you shouldn't be angry, you go, totally should. But, But you can be other things too. Let's find a variety of ways to respond to um, to an evil that we see is happening, and let's not rip each other apart in the midst of all working together for some kind of common goal regarding saying let's make the world safer for LGBTQ people yeah. or whatever um, issue it is that we're talking about. Um, and so I think anger has saved my life. Wow. And uh, when people have told me not to be angry, I've told them I'm planning on getting angrier. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's so important. I think it's uh, to make the space for anger, but what you're saying seems very wise in terms of um, having an appreciation for the different modes that that can get expressed. And um, 
I think sometimes I unfortunately have uh, advocated or, or tried to um, tried to wrap my head around uh, what what the best way of um, confronting these things would be. And uh, if somebody critiques a certain mode of protest, or even, for example, um, I had some friends that were critiquing, who were gay, critiquing Pride Parade in Seattle. Yeah. And I was like, well, what do you suggest if not that? And they're like, well, it's not our job to suggest something else. We're just saying this has sure. problems and and uh, there's other ways of expressing pride and there's other ways of expressing what that's trying to accomplish. Yeah. And I was sort of antagonistic. I was like, well, then you tell me the better way, you know, and, yeah. uh, just to just to think that we well, we don't have to we can use our imagination to yeah, yeah. think of many different ways that we can yeah, true. confront these things. Yeah. Uh, and from the point of view of conflict mediation, the interest for me is to say how in the midst of deep disagreement can we exercise a democratic muscle where we are arguing brilliantly and creatively with each other, disagreeing hugely and nonetheless keeping our eyes on something which is to say we need to find some compromising way to collaborate with each other for the greater good. Mm. And um, different things will win at different times. Great. And different things can coexist at different times. You know, I'm a poet. The call of poetry is to do a certain kind of piece of work. Um, I'm very interested in politics, and people will sometimes say to me, oh, well, you know, we should go into politics. I would be a terrible politician. <laughs> I'd be awful. Um, that's not my work to do. And uh, for people whose work it is to do, the point for me is to think I shouldn't hold them to the standards that I think I, a poet should be held to. Mm. I should hold them to the standards of politics, which is a standard that I would not be able to reach uh, and I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, we all don't need to do the same thing mm. and it won't always feel comfortable because we'll be doing different things. But there should be a capacity to, that people who do ultimately have some kind of common goal for societal improvement should be able to work together because otherwise people who are trying to do good will rip each other apart. And people who are interested in in greed and self-promotion, they'll win every single time. Uh, yeah, and so who is winning is a serious question. Mm. I see groups on the left tearing themselves apart and they're interested to go, are you going to win or are we going to win? You or we? And I think, do you know who's really winning? It's people who hate all of you. Mm. They're winning. Yeah. And so let's be more conflict intelligent about that and let's not let ourselves be the playthings that allow other people to be out of the limelight of accusation well it's uh, it's so funny i find myself in the midst of interviewing you saying why you say oh this is so profoundly articulate well, it's like of course from a poet i would i would imagine you know you working with words uh, so precisely and that's one of the things you've said this week uh, about the particularity um yeah yeah, words are plain. I'm I'm interested yeah. in plain words. I don't like using words that you know. I'm not interested in using words that you'd have to look up the dictionary for. Yeah, yeah, I'm I really get that. I'm interested in using words that are that are just the words of everyday speech. Mm -hmm. I, I I guess as we are wrapping up, I would wonder, or I think it'd be it'd be interesting to hear you talk about what you think the role of poetry has played in your hmm. um, confrontation with these things, or 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 I think I think I think poets are sort of mysterious in terms of the role they play in society. And you often, you seem to have a very um, clear idea of what role you play as a poet. 
I'm not sure I do. I okay. mean, I don't know where poetry comes from. I don't know why I need to write it. I can certainly say, look, the Irish education curriculum was saturated in poetry. I spoke two languages when I got to school. So those are things certainly that made the entry point and the doorways into poetry work. But there's loads of people who write poetry for whom that wasn't mm-hmm. the case. They came to poetry late in life or they'd been failed by the education system. And what the what the purpose of poetry is, I don't know. Right. Because certainly some poems have been used for great social change, but I'm not sure that that's the final purpose of the poem. Um, the purpose of the poem is to be the poem. And then if it does something, I'm curious about what it's done, but I'm not sure that that exhausts what the purpose of the poem is. Mm. Somehow the poet or the poem comes from outside the poet, or this is the same with any art, music or dance or any kind of form of exp- expressive um creative expression um, partly the purpose of the poem is to remind us that we're not in charge of its purpose mm. that it's bigger um, that it comes from somewhere out with and calls us and even the poet themselves or any artist is not in complete control as to what the message is there's something different in there that there is a certain relinquishing of control in the, even in the midst of using skill to compose a poem that there's something bigger in the poem or there should be Otherwise, it's just uh, it's just a piece of rhetoric on behalf of the poet making a making in verse uh, an argument for something. Mm. There should be something bigger. There should be something uncontrollable. There's a deeper intelligence in the poem than the poet might even know. Um, we hope. Yeah. Uh, I think the poems that seem to have gone lots of places can be ones like that. And I I think there's something really powerful in that. There's a music to it. There's a lamentation to it. There's a vivacity and life to it there's um, a piece of art has has its own life and after many years of conflict resolution where I was focusing on the language being used between people who are locked in binary arguments I've um, moved away from conflict resolution because poetry has always been the thing that kept me alive and I'm really interested in um, spending all of my working life now Mm -hmm. working in with poetry um, because it has so much to say it's it feels inexhaustible um, and it isn't just an argument that's going to feel like an endlessly repeated argument. It's something that's going to be endlessly creative in terms of the possibility of human flourishing that might arise as a result of being involved in a creative endeavor. Hmm. I, well, <laughs> I know when I listen back to this uh, recording, I'm just going to want to listen back to what you just <laughs> said on loop a few times. <laughs> but I, what I think I've loved in terms of spending some time with you this week um, I think you have helped us here understand that scripture is similar to poetry and gets us in touch with something of transcendence. Mm -hmm. And too often, it seems almost always, we try to wrestle down scripture into something that is merely rhetoric. Yeah. Um, And and it's, I mean, you've you've helped us see the the true poetry and beauty and depth. And uh, um, even, even when we were talking about Abraham and Isaac, the the scandal of scripture and not mm. not wanting to look away from that or try to figure it out yeah. or yeah. or just thinking about all the, the midrash that's been done on that yeah. one passage. That was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Books and books and books. Yeah, but but we've turned the the Bible into some sort of giant textbook which makes it so boring. Yeah. And what you're talking about with poetry, if something has infinite depth and comes from a place that's not necessarily meant to be completely understood mm. and it can mean many things at the one time yeah and the question is, is how are you going to live now with integrity and with a moral imagination mm. yeah. how would you and maybe you wouldn't but how would you 
differentiate the role of a poet from something like a politician or a pastor or a different type of leader or station in the world? Oh, I'd need to think a bit more about that. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, we elect politicians to be in a role where they're going to be deliberately in a room who, with people who disagree. And they know that they have a three, four, five-year cycle before they need to go back out again. Mm. And they make promises that they might not be able to fulfill totally, but that they'll be able to fulfill partially. Like, if you fulfill your promises partially over the course of a period of time when you were elected, that's pretty good. Yeah. You know, it's not great. It's not perfection. Yeah. But when has there been a perfect politician? Do you know, mm. um, you're likely to make more promises leading up to a time when you're about to be elected, <laughs> you know, or you're <laughs> right, right. or not elected. Yeah. So th- that's that's the game they're in. And while I'd like the game to improve, I don't expect politicians to be um, perfect. Yeah. Um, poets do different work. Do you know, poets are, poets aren't out making promises to people about what they're going to be able to fulfill in policy. Um, I think artists are sometimes they're caught up in the anxiety of trying to reveal the world as it is. And therefore, I hold artists to a different standard. Mm. Um, like if an artist is using their art as propaganda for a particular political system, I feel like that artist may not, may be worthy of being questioned too, you know. <laughs> and if you have a politician who's so pure in there in trying to get everything right that actually they are incapable of meeting with any politician mm. who disagrees even slightly mm. with them, they're likely to be... Not a good politician. Not a very good politician. Yeah. They're not likely to form much collaboration. So in the midst of wanting to get this, like 20 points of pristine perfection in a policy across, they don't get 17 because they're mm. not able to meet people. Mm. Um, so they get zero. And so I, I hold politicians to the standard to go, uh, what have you been able to achieve in the midst of knowing you're going to fail, yeah. but uh, you're not going to get the 20 points you guaranteed? But what have you been able to achieve and how have you built some interesting alliances along the way and how have you been able to create something where people can collaborate and where people's lives, you know, in terms of your constituents, have been improved? Hmm. Um, And have you demonstrated integrity? Have you demonstrated a capacity to listen and learn while you're on the job? Have you demonstrated a capacity where your ego is able to take in and go, I was wrong and actually as a result of that, here's how I'm changing. That's Hmm. interesting to me in terms of a politician. so those are different, different jobs. Very different. You know, yeah. um, I'm sure there's some um, politicians who are poets um, <laughs> and, and otherwise too. But even if some of these things rest within the same person, we have different roles in different contexts. You know, If somebody is a parent as well as being the director of a company as well as being a volunteer person in a fire service, well then each of those things bring out different parts of mm. you. And the point is, is that you can leave those parts behind when you're in a different part. Yeah, that sounds very wise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. I find uh, what you're saying is so loaded with depth. It's it's like uh, I the, the the there's no proper response <laughs> aside from just like I need to think about that for a while. And well said. It's like <laughs> way more than well said. But um, yeah, just as you were talking, I was thinking. I don't know when we're going to release this episode. Probably in a few weeks. But last night the Democratic debates were on, oh, so really? I was just watching some clips. This morning, and okay. it's interesting to compare hearing your poetry, listening to Justin play his violin, listening to Peter talking philosophy and poetry, and then juxtaposing that with these politicians on stage who all have sort of this trite message that they've memorized that they're yeah. trying to get across in sound bites, and also turning on each other. Yeah, 
you know, they're just they're just tearing each other apart mm-hmm. on this stage, mm-hmm. and it's so mm-hmm. discouraging to watch because it's, uh, in many ways they're trying to accomplish the same thing, but that's part of the game is, mm-hmm. you know, in order to show to some potential voters that they are strong and have authority, they're going to call out Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden, whoever's at the top, they want to take them down. Yeah. Um, it's it's cynical, it's hard to watch, uh, yeah. and it's necessary probably, but like, Having well, that compared a, to what we were yeah, doing here. Partly, uh, one of my curiosities is, is to think, is it necessary? It's said at the moment that that is the game of politics, but it hasn't always been like that. Mm. We, you know, amongst people who are on the same side, clearly different ones of them want to win. They want to be, you know, whoever's in those debates, each of them wants to be the one who's chosen as the as the nominee. Um, but it, does it have to be that you have to rip each other apart to get there? Or could there be something else? Um I don't know, maybe a politician would say to me, stop being naive, but I probably would say to a politician, stop enacting a nightmare. So, yeah. Uh, and then we'd have an interesting conversation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I want to make sure I honor your time. We can wrap up, but I maybe have uh, two two questions. I mean, first of all, do you have a, a poem you could read by any chance? Uh, sure. There's one called Creed. Um, I wrote this years ago. Okay, um, so we'll end with it. Okay. Um, if you don't mind. Um but uh, okay, so let me let me see. How I want to do this. Well, I, well, one question I guess I would have is if there's people listening, because I do know that there's in 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 terms of our listeners, there are some teenagers that are listening, and a lot of twenty something young people that I think are still struggling mm. with coming out or wrestling with their sexual identity or sexuality. And I, I don't know if as we're wrapping up, you'd have a word of encouragement. Mm. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, it's a good thing to have five good people in your life, mm. five people you trust, mm. um, people of different ages and in different contexts, um, that uh, if you're part of a group that will threaten to exclude you, if you begin to be more honest about parts of your life, they'll get rid of you at some point anyway. You might be able to stretch it out for 10 years if you want, but, you know, they're going to sacrifice you anyway. So it's really worthwhile belonging to groups that don't threaten you with exclusion. Um, uh, so it's a good idea to have five people in your life to go, no matter what I tell them about myself, actually those five people will still be my five people. And um, that's a really good thing to do. Some people your own age, some people a bit older, lovely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's I think that's a great thing to do. And that... Um, groups that create belonging by virtue of threatening to kick you out, I don't think that those groups are great places of belonging. Uh, And there are all kinds of fantastic groups around the place who will not make you choose between your faith and your sexual and gender identity. There's all kinds of places to say, you know, it's not that they say you're welcome regardless of your sexuality. You're you're welcome, and we regard your sexuality with great dignity. Mm. So you come along mm. and say, I'm non-binary. They're like, great, um, how can we support you? Um, what are your preferred pronouns? And do you want to sign up on the rota? Because we need people on the rota, you know. <laughs> so it is to say that these things aren't barriers to full participation Absolutely. in terms of volunteering as well as leadership. So... Um, there's all kinds of places in most cities where you can find somewhere to belong mm. and those places are increasing and also places where you can be signposted are increasing. And so there's national organizations in the United States that will um, signpost you to place, communities of faith nearby. Um, a simple Google search will bring up some places and please God, there'll be more and more of those places where people don't have to um, tolerate a certain amount of threat in order to have a place where their faith can be expressed. 
Beautiful. Thank you so much. Mm. Yeah, I, I, as I've listened to you, um, you know, wh- wh- whether I'm reading poetry or listening to a good song, um, I think I think the things you've been saying are so rich, and and uh, the conversation topic obviously is not uh, a flippant conversation. No. So um, it's life and death. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I'm I've, I've I know I'm sort of hosting and facilitating a conversation. <laughs> oh yeah, you're gonna get your poem. Okay, so as we're wrapping up, I'm gonna put your microphone right here. Uh, as we're wrapping up, oftentimes we'll end an episode of No Small Thing with a benediction or a poem or a reading of some kind. And as we know, uh, Podrick is a poet, so we'll end this episode with a poem. Okay, so uh, we'll end with this. This will be the last thing, but Podrick, I just want to say thank you so much for spending time with me this Thanks. afternoon. It's been great. Thanks, Scott. And I hope I get to talk with you again someday, but I'll, I'll listen to any other podcasts I catch you on at some <laughs> point. <laughs> Creed. I once was blind, but now I can see. I once was him, but now I'm me. I once was cold, but now I'm not. I used to fear hell where the fire is hot. I wanted to be straight, but the thing is I'm queer. I thought I belong there, but I belong here. I once was wrong because I thought I was right. I thought that the darkness was the same as the night. And I thought that the light was consoling and beautiful. All that asked was be pure and be right and be dutiful. But light can be insipid and daytime can be vacuous. And no cult is so crude as the cult of the miraculous. I thought that walking on the water would be the end of it all. But addiction to articulation was the start of my fall. I fell into meaninglessness, I fell into sin, I fell into darkness and I felt caged in and I fell into the arms of something that was lurking in the corners, in the shadows and it's been slowly converting my methods and madness into myth and new meaning, my sagas and sadness given girth and given grieving. And now I believe in the God of the human, the good and the glorious, the generous and moving. I once was blind now I'm blinder still, and inside my own nighttime I am silent and still. <laughs>